welcome to Stat. I'm telling you all medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre. Karen Wickham, yeah, she used to work in the R, and now she's sharing the knowledge. So let's get involved. Hey, funny and scary at the same time. Medical mysteries, all facts. She ain't lying. <laughs> so tune in to Stat if you dare, 'cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat. Shocking traumas and treatments, and I am your host Karen Wickham, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Before I get started, I want to give a big shout out, thank you, for a couple of iTunes reviews. First of all, thank you to Not Something Nice and to Low Riled. Means a lot. Thank you guys, and if you guys can keep. Up with the reviews, that would be fantastic. Also, a big thank you to my Patreon supporters.、It、means a lot, and it helps keep this podcast going. So, thank you again for all your support, and to the people that are on my Facebook group and listeners, just everybody out there that contributes to this podcast. Thank you all. I just realized. Before making this recording, that I passed my one-year anniversary of doing this podcast, so maybe I can call this my one-year anniversary podcast. Woo! Yay! And maybe a couple of hiss boos. I hope not too many of those. But anyway, yeah, it has been a year. Holy smoking smokers! It's been a lot of fun. I love doing this, and I've met so many amazing people—from podcasters to oh my god, the the listeners. You guys are incredible, and of course, podcasters who have given me so much support along the way, who、uh, helped me learn my chops. So I want to give a little bit of a thank you to Jerry Polly from Hillbilly Horror Stories, and Tyler and Beck. From the Minds of Madness, and also to Lainey Hobbs of True Crime Fan Club, and we're all just pretending. And now this wacky lady has a third podcast called "It's Haunted." What now? Yeah, so check all those out as well. So there are so many more other podcasters that have been incredibly supportive, but、uh, I would have to take up this whole episode to say thank you. But just you know who you are, and thank you again. So it's time to get started on episode three of this deplorable, horrible human being, Kermit Gosnell. I'm giving a trigger warning right here, right now, because this is such a sensitive subject, and it may trigger some people. This episode is going to be a heck of a lot more in depth and a bit more. Detailed, but I would be remiss to leave some of the details out. So, just giving you a warning ahead: this may not be the episode for you. Also, this is not safe for work or for any kids to be around to listen to. But I know you guys know the score. So, anyway, this episode is going to talk about the maniacs, the monsters. That actually worked for Gosnell. Who would work for this guy? 
I mean, he wouldn't have a practice without employees, right? So I'm going to get into details about these ugh, despicable people. Let's talk a bit about Gosnell's practice. His clinic was not set up to provide care to treat patients. He was not an advocate for women to have full control of their bodies and their lives. He cared not to serve his community. He was in it for the money. He made himself a lucrative business, selling prescriptions and exploiting women at their most vulnerable while torturing them at and times murdering them and their viable neonates. Gosnell took what is considered one of the safest medical procedures and made it dangerous and deadly. He did this in a big part by employing unlicensed and untrained workers. The clinic defied all medical protocol. It was filthy, unsanitary, lacked the proper emergency equipment, surgical equipment, and violated most, if not all, of the laws. An ethical and professional abortion clinic cannot make near as much money unless corners were cut, like reusing disposable supplies, or not paying for biohazardous waste to be disposed of. It was estimated that Gosnell made as much as ten dollars to $15,000 a day, mostly in cash, for only a few hours of work. Don't forget that he was also running a pill mill on top of that. Here is a quote from the grand jury report. Quote, The Women's Medical Society stands as a monument to an absolute disdain for health and safety of women, and in many cases of babies who were born alive in this filthy clinic. The deaths of women and countless viable pregnancies were a direct and foreseeable consequence of reckless and illegal manner in which Gosnell operated his clinic. End of quote. As I've said before, none of Gosnell's staff were licensed or properly trained. He hired medical students and presented them as doctors. Some of the worst of these employees were Linda Williams, Sherry West, and Steve Masoff. They were the most dangerous because they were unethical, moral, and uncaring. They overmedicated and grossly undermodered women, and they fully supported and executed the cost-cutting model of the clinic. The staff practiced medicine that only a licensed doctor or nurse could perform, and they did it unsupervised. And to add on top of this was the condition of the clinic. Every woman that walked into the clinic was lucky to leave alive. It's a wonder more women didn't die, and maybe more did. We'll just, we'll never know. The two women that did die by the hand of Gosnell and his staff were not reported to the police initially, and maybe more weren't as well. It's a thought that I really don't want to entertain, but I think needs to be. When two of Gosnell's employees sought out abortions, they went elsewhere because they knew better. They were blown away when the clinics they went to were clean and sanitary. The staff was qualified and the procedure was done with care and competence. Unlike these ethical professionals and legitimate clinics, Gosnell would perform abortions way past the legal cutoff date of 23 weeks, 6 days. Like I said before, he put all of these women at risk. Here's another excerpt from the grand jury report. Quote, Mrs. Connemeyer Monger was just one of many patients victimized by Gosnell's depravity. There were scores more. At least one other mother died following an abortion in which Gosnell punctured her uterus and sent her home. 
he left an arm and a leg of a partially aborted fetus in the womb of another woman and then told her he did not need to see her when she came back sick days later, having developed a temperature of 106. He had perforated her bowels, cervix, and uterus. He had left women sterile. As for the babies, let me make this clear. I'm not about to debate when a baby is a baby or a life is a life. But there is no doubt that babies he aborted were living. These babies were over 30 weeks to up to full term. They moved their arms and their legs. They cried. They breathed. They curled up their little bodies to try to keep warm. Sometimes these babies were alive for 20 minutes before having their spinal cords severed with scissors by him or his employees. It was reported that Linda Williams made a point of showing the other staff that she was playing with a baby before killing him or her. These women who suffered unimaginable pain, suffering, and death was not caused by accidents or botched procedures. It was standard practice perpetrated by him and his employees. And none of this matters as long as he made money. His clinic was split up into two practices, an abortion clinic on the first floor and a family practice slash pill mill on the second floor. The family practice opened at 10 o'clock. The abortion clinic and patients would arrive throughout the day. And Gosnell would stroll through the doors after 8 p.m. after the women seeking abortions were medicated to the point that their bodies could no longer hold on. Abortions were usually scheduled four days a week, Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Wednesdays, Gosnell did not work at all, but he left all his unlicensed staff to do the work. Sundays were for the very late-term abortions. We're talking 30 to 40 weeks, and those were ones only him and his wife Pearl performed. One of his employees, Latasha Lewis, reported that every night, except on Sundays, approximately 20 first-term abortions and five to six second-term abortions would be performed. Most of the staff, when hired, were surprised at the duties they were required to perform. Gosnell told him that he could train and certify him and make it legal. This, of course, was a criminal bold-faced lie. I'm stating it again that the Women's Health Society was not there to provide competent health care. It was a business whose service was to provide same-day or late-term abortions for cash. Slowly, he was getting less and less referrals for first-term abortions. Doctors didn't want to send their patients there for a variety of reasons, one of which was that many untold number of women would return to those referring doctors with STDs like chlamydia, herpes, gonorrhea, and others. They were getting these infections because Gosnell reused disposable equipment and did not sterilize the other equipment. Gosnell was already doing second and third trimester abortions, but when his numbers went down, these abortions went up. Some of the shadier clinics that refused to do illegal late-term abortions would refer the women to Gosnell. This was very profitable for him because he could charge more for a later-term pregnancy. He also offered a menu of a cocktail of drugs to the women that they could choose from. The deeper the sedation, the greater the cost. This illegal, unethical, and very dangerous practice was left for these desperate women or untrained staff to determine. So let's talk about the goings-on, these unlawful practices. 
on top of the clinic being filthy, unsanitary, unsafe? What stopped the staff from doing the necessary cleaning and maintenance? What stopped the staff from refusing to use disposable equipment? What stopped the staff from properly sanitizing the equipment? This barely scratches the surface. There was an utter disregard for health and safety of these patients and a terrible lack of respect for their dignity and a godlike belief that he would always get away with the disgusting treatment of the women who came to him for help. While there was no doctor on the premises during the day, the clinic's unlicensed assistants saw abortion patients beginning at 10 a.m. Women could walk in for ultrasounds for what the clinic staff called pre-exams. During the pre-exam, which cost $125, the clinic's workers would ask the patient about her past medical history, allergies, and last menstrual period. The staff member would also draw blood, take the woman's blood pressure, and perform an ultrasound to determine the age of the fetus. Even though none of the staff were properly trained to do ultrasounds, Gosnell taught how to do the ultrasounds in such a way that the fetuses appeared to be under 24 weeks if they were in fact 24 weeks and older. Then the clinic employee would have the patient sign the facility's consent form, rarely if ever reviewing it with the client, and then schedule the procedure. The law states that when women go into a clinic for an abortion, they have to wait 24 hours before getting the abortion after receiving counseling from the doctor. By 2008, this all went out the door. Women could go to Gosnell's clinic for same-day abortions as long as they had the cash. Second trimester procedures were more complicated because the cervix had to be dilated enough so that the fetus could be extracted. If a woman was 15 to 24 weeks pregnant, the woman would be scheduled for a Monday or a Friday for the first step of a two to three day procedure. If the pregnancy was 24 weeks or more, the dilation would start that night. In order to dilate the cervix, Lamaria was placed into the cervix. Although Gosnell did that himself, it's a delicate procedure. Doing this otherwise would cause great damage. I'm sure by now you would not be surprised that his unqualified workers would pry open the woman's vagina with a speculum and insert the Lamaria themselves. Lamaria is kind of like, I don't want to say seaweed, but it is a like a plant that when wet expands. So when they place a medically made piece of this Lamaria onto the cervix, when the moisture would expand it and slowly open the cervix. So as you can imagine, it is an incredibly delicate procedure that should only be performed by a physician trained to do so. So yeah, they were doing it. Afterwards, the woman would be sent home with pain medication and a drug called Cytotec. And Cytotec is a drug that softens the uterus. The patients would be asked to return the next day to have the abortion be performed or to have some more Lamaria replaced because the fetus was too large. If the patient arrived at a state, they were left to sleep in the clinic by themselves. No staff present to suffer through the pain alone in, in, in this filthy, horrible place. And he had tanks of, of fish and huge turtles. So if you can picture being in this clinic for an abortion with no staff and it's filthy 
with cats, flea-bitten cats roaming around and the sound of these turtles clinking, banging on the inside of these tanks. This is just a nightmare, a nightmare, these, these poor women. So if they arrived out of state, they'd be there alone. On top of that, they were supposed to be closely monitored by a doctor or nurse because they were given such dangerous medication. So let's move forward with what a typical kind of day would be. A receptionist, usually Tina Baldwin, would arrive at the clinic the next day. They would start to give Cytotec to induce labor and to Mazepam, a sedative, uh, to the woman who had stayed overnight or had come back the next day. Gosna would not make an appearance to the clinic until after 8 p.m. These women would be going into labor and they would be in great pain and there was only the incompetent staff there to help. These women would sit upon blood-stained lounge chairs for hours and hours, naked from the waist down. There were no robes, only the bloody and dirty blankets to cover their laps. These women would be given a cocktail of a strong and dangerous uh, painkiller called Demerol, and then Temazepam and Cytotec on top of it. And for your information, Demerol is a drug that doctors stopped using at the time because it was dangerous. It's rarely used now. Gosnell used it because it was cheap. So back to what I was saying. This cocktail was given to the woman by the untrained and incompetent staff. The Demerol was given via IV, which makes it even more dangerous, and the woman would be left unattended. These women would have to be monitored, or should have been monitored closely, uh, their heart rate, their blood pressure, oxygen saturation, and rate of breathing. Demerol can shut down the breathing center in the brain and cause coma and death. If you remember from my past episodes, uh, I did a well an episode on Dr. Shipley, and it was Demerol initially that he used to murder his patients. So remember, these drugs were given frequently and without any direction. Doses were decided on upon staff, not size or weight or physical condition. None of this was taken into consideration. If they were awake and making noise, the staff were told to, quote, shut them up by Gosnell. He did not want the woman to make any noise as it may be heard outside the clinic. And this lack of supervision and assessment would prove to be fatal for at least one woman. There's more. Oftentimes a patient would deliver without Gosnell being present. One of his former employees testified the following. Quote, a lot of times this happened when Gosnell wasn't there. If a baby was about to come out, I would take the woman to the bathroom. They would sit on the toilet and basically the baby would fall out and it would be in the toilet. And I would be rubbing her back, trying to calm her down for two, three, until Dr. Gosnell comes. She would not move. End of quote. James Johnson was supposed to be the person who cleaned the clinic and begged the infectious waste. He confirmed Lewis's statement. He testified to the following, quote, the patients miscarried, or whatever it was, into the toilet and clogged it. He then described how he had to lift the toilet up so that someone else could get the fetuses out of the pipes. He couldn't do it, it made him sick. Gosnell preferred that women would deliver into the toilets because it meant less work for him. A regular delivery would take half an hour and 
yeah, a, a whole half hour and could potentially harm the woman. So he avoided that procedure so that he could avoid a lawsuit. Guzzle would often have his staff physically push the fetuses out of their mothers by pressing hard on the mother's abdomens. To sum up the torture that he put these women through, here is a quote from a board-certified gynecologist and obstetrician who testified as a medical expert. Quote, Gosnell's labor induction method of performing second trimester abortions, as opposed to a standard surgical procedure, entails significant risks, including hemorrhage and debilitating pain that leaves patients unable to care for themselves. The pain suffered by women in full labor requires careful supervision and appropriate sedation. Thus, according to the expert, labor induction should be performed only in a hospital setting where medical professionals can monitor the women throughout their labor. It's time to meet Gosnell's minions, the staff that threw all humanity and compassion and laws out the door to make money. Let's start with two of the worst employees, known as the Delaware Girls, Sherry West and Linda Williams. They drove to work together from Delaware to Pennsylvania. These women complimented and fueled each other's hellfire of mental health problems, tragic lives, criminal fraud, deception and addiction. They also were not very intelligent, but held themselves in high esteem, bullying anyone who they felt was beneath them. They were a nightmare to work with and a living nightmare to the women who went to the clinic. Linda Williams. She was born October 18, 1968. She was a drug addict with a sluggish personality, bipolar, depression, and anxiety. Her husband was murdered, which left her a single mother of three children. She had a grade 8 education with a phlebotomy certificate that allowed her to draw blood. She initially worked at the Delaware Clinic where Gosnell also performed abortions. But she was fired there because of absenteeism and from possibly stealing patients from there to bring to Gosnell's own clinic. After being fired from the Delaware Clinic, she went to work at Gosnell's. Sherry West. Sherry West did not see Williams as an equal, and so she bullied her. She'd boss her around, curse at her, and had her running around doing errands or the heavy work. Later, West would order Williams to snip the necks of the babies who were born alive. One of the biggest complaints and fears that other staff had, ironically, was that Williams and West's incompetence could kill someone, and it did. They played a huge role in Karnamaya Monger's death. Here's some more about Sherry West. She administered anesthesia. Now, to be able to administer anesthesia, you need to be a medical doctor, which is eight years of university education and then an additional four years of specialized education and training. Nurses, too, can have advanced training to assist with giving anesthetics. So on top of that, she conducted ultrasound exams. And an ultrasound exam requires a tech to have at least two years of training through an accredited institution. Another role that she played was that she was supposed to monitor heavily sedated women in recovery, but rarely, if ever, did she ever do that. 
and here we go where this is a situation where a registered nurse would have to be required to do that. Gosnell taught all of his untrained staff how to use the ultrasound machine, including 15-year-old Ashley Baldwin. Here's some more about Linda Williams. Her job was to clean, answer phones, and sedate patients and do ultrasounds. Gosnell taught Williams how to murder babies by snipping the backs of their necks with scissors after they were born. And both women helped deliver babies that were or that had precipitated. Precipitated was a word that Gosnell used for giving birth in the clinic's toilet. West called them specimens instead of babies because she said, because it was, quote, easier to deal with mentally. Williams testified to the horrific murder of a baby known as Baby D. This baby was born in a toilet. Quote, I took it out of the toilet and put it into a bowl, and I used surgical scissors to cut the back of the baby's neck, just like Dr. Gosnell showed me to do. Before I cut the neck, I saw the baby's arms moving. This was when I took it from the toilet and put it in the bowl. And then I went and put it into a milk jug and then took it upstairs. Before I put it in the milk jug, I saw the arms moving and that's when I cut the back of the neck. She would plead guilty to third degree murder in the death of another fetus, baby C, who was breathing outside the womb and moving its arms and legs for about 20 minutes before she snipped the back of its neck with scissors. Williams and West were paid eight to $10 in cash and bonuses of $30 for every abortion they assisted with. It seems like very little money for murder for hire, but for them, it added up fast. As bad as Gosnell's staff were at the clinic, Williams and West got most of the complaints from the coworkers that they were always goofing off and playing around. Instead of monitoring heavily sedated patients like Connemeyer Monger, Gosnell ignored these complaints. Williams was the one who gave Monger the lethal dose of anesthesia. Williams noticed at some point that Karnamaya was not moving and that her color was funny. The ambulance fought to get Monger and they spent 20 minutes trying to get her out of the clinic. They lost all this precious time trying to exit a padlocked and blocked emergency exit. West went with Mrs. Mongar's family to the hospital in their car because she needed time to falsify the medical file and lie about the drugs that were given. This attempt to cover their asses withheld the critical information for the hospital that they needed to attempt to save her life. Even though Williams and West were desperately dependent on Gosnell, they unwillingly betrayed their loyalty by talking too much to the police. Whether this was because they were not very smart or covering their asses, they spilled the beans like a parrot on crack. Their admissions to the police were a combination of lies and truths. They went to Gosnell's home after the raid to get their story straight. True to West's character, she said to the court, quote, I was concerned about my disability benefits being cut off if I was making too much money. End of quote. Not about the woman she abused or the baby she killed. She was worried about the cash. Williams was also very chatty to the police. She exposed some very important info about Karnemeyer Monger's death 
and other illegal practices. She even showed them the logbook that recorded the drugs that were given to Mrs. Mongar. She told the police how she was taught by Gosnell how to manipulate the ultrasound. Linda Williams also lied to the police, saying that one of Connemeyer Mongar's relatives had told her that Mongar had tried to abort the baby by taking drugs before she went to Gosnell, and that was completely untrue. Williams chose to defend Gosnell, even though she revealed so much to the police, whether it was a lie or the truth. Quote, I just want all of this to end. He'd done nothing wrong. End of quote. Williams was charged with murder and the deaths of Connemeyer Mongar and Baby C, violating Controlled Substance Act, conspiracy to violate the Controlled Substance Act, conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to violate the Abortion Control Act, 13 counts of violating the Abortion Control Act by assisting with abortions past gestational age limit. The assistant district attorney, Ed Cameron, wanted Williams to get 20 years in prison. But Benjamin Lerner sentenced her to 5 to 10 years in prison. Not long enough. I do not understand how this woman got 5 to 10 years. It goes to show you that still in the society, women and children are so not important. They're just disposable in a sense. Sherry West. She was charged on 10 counts, including third-degree murder and Karnamaya Mongar's death, violating the Controlled Substance Act, conspiracy, tampering with or falsification of evidence, tampering with records, hindering apprehension, obstructing administration of law, abortion at 24 or more weeks, racketeering, and corruption of the organization. She was sentenced to five to 10 years in prison. I don't know. I'm seeing life for both of them, but okay. It's time to move on to Tina Baldwin. As you are hearing, the employees that worked at the Women's Medical Society were despicable. This woman makes me particularly sick, not just for the horrible things that she did at the clinic, but horrifically for having her 15-year-old daughter, Ashley, work there. Ashley Baldwin performed practically all the horrible practices that went on there. Tina Baldwin was profoundly unqualified to work at an abortion clinic. She too performed ultrasounds, inserted IVs, administered IV anesthesia, and assisted with abortion procedures. She did this for nine years, up until the month before the raid in February 2010. Just before the raid, she left to care for her dying mother, otherwise she would have continued on. She loved to work at the front desk at night. This is when the drug dealers would show up to pick up the illegal prescriptions, and she made a lot of money from their generous tips. Now, this is, this is part of the thing that drives me absolutely wacko. She sacrificed her daughter's mental health, put her in harm's way by having her exposed to this charnel house. Can you imagine being 15 years old, working in a torture chamber, house of horrors of a medical clinic, being exposed to such insanity, the trauma of it, but then slowly but surely learning and performing the practices that forget the qualifications that even an adult could not bear performing. She was also giving anesthesia, assisting with abortions, 
monitoring deeply sedated post-op patients, starting IVs, and on and on and on. She even made a cheat sheet for medication administration so that it was easier to follow. So how traumatic was that? How did this affect her young, impressionable, developing mind? The questions go on and on. Tina Baldwin did everything she could to be out in the front to make the money. So she exposed her daughter to do the duties of what she was supposed to do going on in the back. Ashley Baldwin worked an average of 50 hours a week while attending high school. Ashley Baldwin was not charged with anything, and I can only hope that she got all the support and counseling she would need to lead a normal, well-adjusted life, as best as she can anyway. So I want to backtrack to Tina Baldwin. Here's a quote from Tina Baldwin that might give you a further snapshot as to what kind of dirtbag she is. Quote, One of the things I did when he was in one room, we were always in another room setting it up and getting the patient ready. And I would go to him, Dr. Gosnell, do you want me to medicate this patient? And he would say yes or no. Nine times out of ten, if the patient was white, he didn't want me to medicate the patient. He wanted to meet her, talk to her, and get a little history on her. If the patient was African-American or from Africa, I would say we used to call repeated offenders, it really didn't matter. He would say, go ahead, med them up, go ahead, end of quote. Baldwin asked Gosnell why he treated black and white patients differently, and he said, sorry, but that's how it is. I have read that so many times, and racism, racism, racism. Baldwin worked the night Monger died but her plea deal allowed her to escape murder charges. Baldwin was sentenced to 30 months probation for conspiracy, engaging in a corrupt organization and the corruption of a minor. Again, not bloody well near enough. Next, I'm going to talk about Karima Cross. She began working for Gosnell in 2005 when she was 25 years old. Her jobs included drawing blood, ultrasound, and injecting labor-inducing drugs vaginally. She had absolutely no qualifications to do these procedures. Cross stated that she didn't like Gosnell because he often yelled at her. On October 22, 2018, Cross took a series of pictures that would be used as evidence against Gosnell in his trial. One of the pictures showed a container on a filthy floor. The container is full of surgical scissors and green sterilizing fluid. Another showed a dried blood stain, and another showed a cat in the procedure room. And there was a series of five pictures that showed rows and rows of severed baby feet in jars. And some of these feet seem very large, like full term large. Gosnell said that he kept the feet for DNA purposes, something that is practiced nowhere If you've ever followed enough true crime, as I'm sure you have, only a very small amount of DNA is ever needed for any kind of testing or research. Cross cooperated fully with all the authorities, and this is what she told him. She was aware of more than 100 abortions that Gosnell performed after the legal limit at 24 weeks or older. She told detectives about minors who were brought into the clinic against their will by their mothers. If Gosnell sensed the girls might not want the abortion, he would give them a pill. 
and after they had taken it, he would tell them that it was poison. And their child was already dead, so there would be no turning back. In fact, Cross said, she saw many babies born alive after these mothers were induced. Cross took a picture of baby boy A. She also told detectives that she saw lots of babies born with their eyes open, alive, breathing, and with color. She stopped working at the clinic in 2009, shortly before she gave birth to her daughter. Cross called the FBI offices with a tip. She said she had information about an illegal prescription drug dealing crime ring on the premises. Ultimately, her testimony would be pivotal in sending Gosnell to prison for life. Cross was not charged with any crime because of her full cooperation. Next, I'm going to talk about Adrian Moten. Moten met Gosnell when she was in high school. She was a friend of Gosnell's niece who lived with the Gosnells, so Moten spent a lot of time hanging out there. Moten got pregnant in junior high. Pearl Gosnell told Moten that she was too young and that she needed to have an abortion, and she took her to have an abortion at the clinic, and it was performed by none other than Gosnell. Moten got pregnant a second time, and Gosnell performed that abortion as well. Moten moved in with the Gosnells when she was 18 years old. She referred to Gosnell as her uncle. They provided her food and clothing and all the other things that she would need. And Moten got pregnant a third time, but she kept this baby. And when this baby was five months old, the Gosnells kicked her out. The baby was crying too much. So very compassionate, aren't they? Babies are considered a nuisance. Surprise, surprise. By 2005, Moten was broke and desperately needed a job. Enter the Gosnells Clinic. He hired her as a grossly underqualified employee to work at an abortion clinic. Moten was involved with practically all aspects of the clinic's practices. She felt she owed Gosnell for how he had supported her as a teen. And she also felt she owed him loyalty and, well, the money was good. There is also evidence that Moten and Gosnell were having an affair. Moten knew that what was going on at the clinic was wrong and that what she was doing was wrong. She did something that would, in the future, play a major role in exposing and convicting Gosnell. She took a picture with her phone. She took the picture because she knew that she was taking a picture of a murdered baby. This baby was known as Baby Boy A. Quote, It was a big baby boy. It had that color, that color that a baby has. I just felt that he could have had a chance. He could have been a born baby any day. I took the picture. I remember coming home. I showed my mom. I said, the doc has lost his mind. This is ridiculous. I never got rid of that phone. To be honest, I just couldn't get rid of it. I had a feeling that it was going to come to the surface. I just didn't know when. So when the police came, I give them the phone. I said, there's a picture in there. Do whatever you have to do with it because now I'm free of it. I'm free. End of quote. The FBI recovered the image. Moten had been charged with murder, conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy and racketeering for her role in the killing of an infant born alive at Gosnell's clinic. Furthermore, Moten was 
quoted to say this, quote, I'm so glad that I got arrested. I don't feel like I got arrested. I feel like I got rescued, end of quote. During her testimony, Moten admitted that what she had done was very wrong and that she was very remorseful. She left the clinic in 2010 because she couldn't bear to work there anymore. Judge Lerner sentenced Moten to time served, 28 months, plus three years probation. Let's move on to Liz Hampton. Liz Hampton was friends with Gosnell's wife from their time together in foster care. She had a very difficult childhood. She had worked for Gosnell on and off for 12 years before the raid. Hampton was treated like family and had a close relationship with Gosnell's mother. In 1999, Hampton and her common-law husband, Jimmy Johnson, who, if you remember, was the maintenance man at the clinic, moved into the Gosnell's house. She paid Pearl Gosnell $600 a month from her disability check. All the while, she was working at the clinic and making decent money that she was paid for in cash. So here there is more welfare fraud. Hampton was also a violent alcoholic. She was paid $10 an hour to answer phones, clean procedure rooms, and sterilize instruments. As we know, that never really were sterilized. But that wasn't all. When patients changed their minds and began to resist the procedure, she would physically hold them down on the table. Hampton called Gosnell by his middle name, Baron, because she said she hated him so much that she refused to call him by his first name. Even though she hated Gosnell, she too lied for him under oath. Again, her testimony was mixed with lies and truth. She described him as, quote, a mad, bad, evil, conniving, selfish, inconsiderate bastard. Whatever Baron threw at me, I dealt with because he was paying me and I had to live. She lied to the FBI about what she knew about Karnamaya Monger's death. She lied about her treatment. She lied that Monger spoke English fluently. And she supported William's lie about Monger taking a lot of drugs to try and force an abortion herself. She also lied to the grand jury and was charged with perjury, false swearing, obstructing the administration of law, and hindering, and hindering apprehension or prosecution. She lied about assisting with abortions, and she lied about administrating Cytotec to Karnamaya Monger. On April 3, 2013, Hampton described her cleaning duties in court, telling how she disposed of fetal remains in the bottles attached to a suction machine. Assistant DA Joanne Pescatori had asked what she did with the bottle's contents. Quote, I would pour it into the drain, in the sink, and then I would turn it on. She answered. Turn the garbage disposal on? Pescatori asked. Yes, Hampton said. She admitted to seeing Gosnell snipping live babies' necks, and she stated that the clinic staff idolized Gosnell. It appears that Gosnell and Hampton had a contentious relationship. Quote, I started working, answering phones, signing people in, and his attitude I didn't like. It was like, I'm superior, you're nothing, this is how I got treated. End of quote. Gosnell didn't like that Hampton referred to his wife, Pearl, as her sister because he saw Hampton as a low-class citizen. As for Hampton, Gosnell would also grope his staff. Quote, When I started, I was coming down the hallway, and Barron was behind me. I couldn't hear him because of the carpet. He came into the office, and he put his hands on me. 
I turned around to him and said, don't you ever fucking put your hands on me again. And from that point on, we didn't get along. End of quote. When Liz was arrested, she was put into protective custody. In fact, all of those that were arrested were put into protective custody. Quote, everyone wanted to kill us. The first day we went to court, as we walked into the prison, the guards, the girls, they knew even before we got there, what we were there for. When we walked into the prison doors, people were screaming, baby killers, they're baby killing bitches. End of quote. Eventually, they were let out of protected custody as the truth came out. Pearl Gosnell started to show her rough side. She stated that she would have liked to have people fucked up over their arrests. Pearl asked Hampton to continue to lie, but Hampton said that she no longer wanted to do that. So Pearl started to badmouth her sister, and Hampton felt betrayed. Hampton was given probation for perjury. On to Latasha Lewis. She started working for Gosnell in 2000. She became a confidential informant to the FBI in 2010. Lewis had a basic training certificate from Thompson Institute that qualified her to take vital signs and prep patients for exams, which made her more qualified than most people that work there. Lewis worked ridiculously long hours, usually from 10 a.m. to 2 to 3 a.m. the next day, assisting with all procedures. Tasha knew that she was unqualified to do what Gosnell demanded of his employees. She initially gave anesthetic medication to the patients, but she refused to do it after a while after a few close calls. Lewis said she did not snip any babies. She said she would not assist with that. But she did witness babies fall out of their mothers almost every night that she'd worked in the clinic. When she realized that a baby was about to come, she would take the woman into the bathrooms and sit them on the toilets. I read you a quote earlier about how she would rub their backs and that they would sit there for hours at a time. What I didn't mention was that there was a timer on the lights and then after a while they would just sit there in the dark. Lewis did have some involvement in Connemeyer Monger's care. She did the pre-exam on her and Lewis pled guilty to drug distribution charges in connection with Gosnell's pill mill operation. But because of her cooperation with investigators, she received a sentence of one day in prison and 24 months of supervised probation. Next is Madeline Joe. She was Gosnell's friend for 30 years, and the staff at the clinic called her the bitch. She was a bully, often verbally abusing staff and upsetting the patients by telling them truthfully that the people who were providing them treatment were not qualified. Truth and cruelty at the same time. Gosnell was Joe's OBGYN, and eventually she ended up working for him for 17 years at the clinic. Joe's job was to make sure that the clinic followed all the Pennsylvania Abortion uh, Control Act rules, policies, and procedures. She was supposed to send monthly reports, but she did that erratically and almost never filed reports for second trimester abortions. She was supposed to do payroll, but the staff were paid under the table. So what was she going to do there? And she mismanaged all the fraudulent insurance claims. Madeline Joe was charged with corrupt organization and conspiracy, and she received four years probation. Next was Randy Hutchins. 
Hutchins worked for Gosnell in the 1980s as a physician's assistant, and he was actually qualified and licensed. The problem was that he was a cocaine addict. He stole money from Gosnell to support his habit and got caught and fired. He went to rehab and has been clean as of 1991. In 2009, Hutchins got a call from Gosnell saying he wanted Hutchins to pay him back. Gosnell said that Hutchins could pay him back by working for him at his clinic. Hutchins was in desperate need for money, so he went and worked for Gosnell. But Gosnell ripped him off. He didn't pay Hutchins at all, and he didn't pay him way after his debt was paid. Hutchins only owed Gosnell $800, but Gosnell told Hutchins that he owed him $5,000. Hutchins' job was managing the chronic pain patients. He worked at the clinic on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Fridays. He began a shift at 8 p.m., and ended when the last patient left, which would usually be around 5 a.m. Hutchins told investigators he saw anywhere from 25 to 30 patients a night, and all of them would pay the $155 office fee in cash. Gosnell wouldn't accept credit cards at the pain clinic. Of course, he didn't want any paper trails. He figured out that Gosnell was running a pill mill and that he was falsifying the ultrasounds and he also refused to help with the abortions. After a while, he had enough. With his debt more than paid, he quit. So let's move on to Pearl Gosnell. Gosnell's third wife. The mother of two of his six children. You know, it almost surprises me that he has kids. It does and it doesn't. I mean, I mean how, do you, how do you figure people like him out? Anyway, these... Children testified to what a wonderful man he was. However, in court, on May 2013, she told Judge Lerner, quote, I am the wife of Kermit Gosnell, and I am not happy about that now, and I haven't been for a long time, end of quote. She started to work for Gosnell in 1982, and she married him in 1990. After the marriage, she worked rarely. And she did little jobs like dropping off supplies. But her main job was to deliver late second term to almost full term babies on Sundays when the offices were closed. Here's a quote from the grand jury report. Gosnell made very little effort to hide his illegal abortion practices. But there were some, the really big ones, that he was even afraid to perform in front of others. End of quote. And as you can imagine and hear, she was quite a despicable person herself. But she attempted to play the victim in court. Surprise, surprise. At sentencing, Judge Lerner told her the following, quote, You were his partner, and you benefited from the fell operation masquerading as a medical facility. Pearl Gosnell was sentenced to seven years and 23 months in prison after pleading guilty to racketeering and performing an abortion past Pennsylvania's gestational age limit. Not long enough. Okay. I need to take a deep breath on this one. Because next to Gosnell, I think this guy, Steve Mazoff, stands alone as a sociopath, no, a psychopath in his own right. 
I find it very difficult to talk about this guy, but I'm going to do my best to hold it together. Okay. This guy was a real jobby of a person. He was an unlicensed medical school graduate. He came from a good middle-class family. He went to medical school at St. George's School of Medicine on the Caribbean island of Grenada. He graduated in 1998 and moved to the U.S. He passed his medical licensing exams and his clinical skills test, but was unable to get a residency. And without a residency, he couldn't become a doctor. So he floundered around working as a bartender and a cook until his brother-in-law, who had a business connection with Gosnell, introduced him to Gosnell. And like all of his employees, he was desperate to work. In his case, to get work experience for his residency, and he jumped on this opportunity. He was hired in 2003. He hated the clinic immediately. Quote, There was always cat excrement all over the place. It was dirty, but the smell was the worst of cats and cat excrement and cat urine. End of quote. He said he hated severing the spines of the babies, but he still did it. He could have left whenever he wanted, but he didn't. Quote, I was just put into a lot of situations that, you know, I didn't want to be in. It all started gradually. End of quote. Mazoff gave some of the most haunting and disturbing testimony of the trial, and he did it with such callousness. He clearly was a psychopath himself. This is how he described what he did in court. Now, before I read this, I'm going to let you guys know that this is some really nasty stuff. It's, it's shocking, so please skip forward if you don't think you can manage it, because it it's pretty bad. Quote, What I would do is I would run around with a basin, scissors, and I would cut the umbilical cord and cut right back on the base of the skull. The base of the skull. Where the base of the skull meets the neck. If you want to humor me, you could place your hand right there and you can feel it's very fleshy and supple. Do you feel right there? Just keep your neck at this exact spot. And then the judge interjected. For the record, the witness is indicating and pointing to the back of his neck and pressing in on the back of his neck just below the scalp. End of quote. Way he describes it. It's... Oh. Anyway... So we started doing this in 2004. The other practices and procedures he performed were that he saw patients on his own and Gosnell would review the charts when he arrived at 8 p.m. Mazoff said he would work from 2 p.m. to 9 p.m. Monday to Friday and some Saturdays. He was also involved in prescription fraud. Mazoff admitted to having an interest in the abortion procedures and he said, quote, I wanted to see what the procedure was like. And I was very inquisitive. So that was one of my interests too. I started helping moving patients around in the procedure area. End of quote. He also falsified ultrasounds. He stated that 40% of the abortions were over the legal limit. He described how Gosnell tried to use digoxin to stop the hearts and end the lives of the fetuses in utero. This is a common procedure used in abortions. When done properly, it ends the life of the fetus quickly. And the way I said that sounds really cold and clinical, but that's how it's done in 
illegal abortions in hospitals. Gosnell was unable to do this. Mazoff said he would assist Gosnell with this procedure by helping him guide the needle via ultrasound. And this is how this remorseless bastard described the procedure. Quote, I would look and see if the heart was beating. If it was beating, I'd say there was rhythm. If it wasn't beating, then I would say there was no rhythm. I'd say, good shot. Most of the time it was a failure in the procedure. The heart was always beating. End of quote. Good shot. Meant that he actually injected the fetus. Once he missed the fetus and injected the mother, she was sent home. And when she got home, she was rushed to the hospital. That's right. She was rushed to the hospital, not from the clinic, but from her house. One of the jurors said of Mazoff's testimony, quote, we thought he might've been high. He seemed to be enjoying giving the evidence. End of quote. Mazoff admitted to killing babies born alive. And he went into great deal explaining how he did the procedure. I don't have the stomach to write or speak of what he did. It, it just, he's just, he's a monster. So I'm just, I, I'm going to leave that part. If you really want to know, you can find the information online. And in some uh, really good books written about this. So I'm going to end this discussion about him with a quote he said. We had, like I said before, we had to prevent life. We had to kill. It's simple as that. End of quote. He quit in 2008, but not because all of a sudden he grew a conscience, but because Ashley Baldwin's father threatened to kill him after insulting Ashley. After the threat, he said, quote, I ran quickly. End of quote. What a friggin' coward. No problem killing babies. But if his life was threatened, he ran and quit. Mazoff was charged with two counts of murder, conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy, violations of the Controlled Substances Act, racketeering, and theft by deception. He pled guilty to two counts of third-degree murder, along with criminal conspiracy and racketeering, Lerner sentenced him to 6 to 12 years in Somerset State Prison. 6 to 12 years. Not long enough. I think you can see why I hate that son of a gun so much. Okay, here we go. Last but not least, Eileen O'Neill. Like Mazoff, she was a medical school graduate, but not a licensed doctor. But, of course, she presented herself as one. She played the role. She wore a white coat, and she took the moniker of doctor, and she had an office on the second floor. But unlike the rest of the clinic, it was clean and orderly. During the raid, she bolted out the back door, because she, she knew she was in big trouble. O'Neill graduated from the University of Texas in 1995 and had a graduate medical trainee license. But in September 2000, she said she let it expire due to PTSD. Here's a good example of what a piece of crap she was. This was in a, a case that involved uh, a woman that they 
gave her the name Denise Doe. In August 1998, uh, she went to the clinic for an abortion. Doe was not asked for a medical history, and she waited seven hours for the procedure. When the procedure was started, she was immediately in excruciating pain, and she was screaming. Now, O'Neill horrendously said to her, quote, and this was substantiated by a nursing student that was assisting her. Quote, if you don't lie still and shut up, you're going to die right there on this table. End of quote. 45 minutes later, O'Neill left the procedure room to speak with Doe's mother. They called the mother Jane Doe. She was told that something had gone wrong. Now, Doe's mother found her daughter crying, covered in sweat, and was bleeding heavily from her vagina. And that blood was draining into a bucket that was by then half full of her blood. Unbelievably, O'Neill told Doe to come back in a week where they can finish off the procedure. Doe's mother rushed her daughter to the hospital immediately, and her condition deteriorated rapidly. The 18-week-old fetus was remarkably still alive. Doe had a severe bacterial infection, and she was put on massive amounts of antibiotics, but they didn't help. The doctors had to perform an abortion as she was septic and gravely ill, and... During that operation, she also had a hysterectomy. O'Neill was charged with theft by deception, conspiracy to commit theft, racketeering, conspiracy related to corruption, perjury, and false swearing. She was found guilty, but she successfully appealed her convictions and is currently awaiting a retrial. Um, I did go online and did a lot of search but I couldn't find any information about if the retrial has taken place yet. So I am not sure um, if she's been convicted or not, or if that trial has taken place. If for some reason, any of you guys uh, do find out or do check, let me know because uh, I found it really hard. Yeah. Didn't, didn't find anything about that. Anyway, that ends this portion of this episode talking about all the horrific monsters that willingly worked for him. Of course, I haven't gone into great detail about Gosnell himself in this one because I have talked about him before and we will talk about his trial and his imprisonment and his contact with some uh, other people while in prison that give up more of his character. There is something also very important to talk about before then, and that was the corruption of the government. What happened here? What happened that allowed his clinic to continue to practice? Why was he overlooked? Why was there a cover-up? Why did the media refuse to cover this story until they were shamed into it? So that's what I'll be covering in future episodes of this, this, this brutal case. But, but, before I end this, I think I am well overdue for a suture room. I think you guys are ready for a suture room. 
Come on in, sit down, and relax. Follow me. We're going to the suture room, the most comfy and safe room of them all. <laughs> well, you know. Right now, I've got your bed all ready with the comfy pillow and a warmed up flannel. And there's only one stain on this one. And we could just both pretend that we don't see it. So here's your ginger ale on ice. I snuck that one. They only, I snuck that one off another patient's tray because they don't give it to us in the department anymore because they think the nurses keep stealing them. And we do. Why? Because we never get to eat or drink. That's right, or pee. But how can you pee if you don't get to eat or drink? Anyway, welcome to another room. Vaping, as you know, has become very, very popular. And I think it's great. It's getting people to stop smoking. There's less pollution in the air, less butts on the ground. And hopefully we'll see a drop in cancer. So I think it's great. I just hope we don't find out that vaping down the road, it turns out that the chemicals in the vaping are as bad, if not worse, than cigarettes. But hey, hey, I'm going to stay positive with that. Anyway, just so you know, vaping has no place inside a hospital. There's no place for it inside an ER. And if you decide to vape, well, in an ER, be prepared to probably get yelled at, maybe even kicked out. And this is where I'm going to start this story. I had a gentleman come in via ambulance, and he was a, a big overweight guy, a big beer belly. I would say he looked like he was a smoker. He had the the yellow fingers, you know, the nicotine fingers and the nicotine teeths. And uh, so I had him all hooked up and ready to go monitoring his heart. And he wasn't looking too great. I, you know, I was, I was worried about him, obviously. So had the doctor come see him and get him all set up for all the tests and stuff that he needs. Started to give him some medications, that kind of thing. So... Uh, his wife came in shortly after and was sitting at his bedside, showed great concern, and, and I told her what was going on. And so we were sort of at a waiting, wait-and-see point at this point. And I was doing my rounds, checking out my other patients, and all of a sudden I see smoke billowing out of his room. Now, I think I told you the story before about the gentleman who called 911 on me because he was smoking in his room while having oxygen on, and I took his cigarettes away, and he wanted me to be arrested. <laughs> and I don't know if I told you about the guy that was in the little tiny bathroom in the hospital with an oxygen tank, and he lit up a cigarette, and all we heard was boom, and we go in the room, and he burnt all the hair off his face in front of his forehead, but survived. <laughs> Yes, people still do that. Anyway, so I go rushing into his room, 
and I see both him and his wife just puffing away, blowing huge poofs of smoke out. I, I find, I don't know with you guys, but when I see like vaping, it seems to be so much more smoke or vape that comes out. It's a lot thicker and more of it. So I'm thinking they're puffing on cigars here. It's absolutely crazy. Then I realize, just before I was revving right up, I realized that they're vaping. And I looked at them both and I'm like, are you kidding me? Can you not do that in here? Of course, I get the, well, why not? It's not a cigarette. It's not smoking. I'm like, hey, buddy, first of all, you're in here. You're probably having a heart attack. The last thing you need to be worried about is smoking. But it calms me down. You know, that kind of thing. The wife's like, well, can I still vape? No, you can't still vape. Put out your vapors. So anyway, yeah, I guess that's a whole new diagnosis, right? Remember in olden days, they'd say, I've caught the vapors. I'm not feeling very well. Well, they had the vapors. They almost didn't. I almost took them, but of course. Probably had the police called me again. Anyway, that's my vaping story. So I'm asking you guys to please try not to piss off the staff or even give your nurse a heart attack while you're having a heart attack thinking that you're smoking. So that's my vaping story. Next. It's not only nurses and different hospital staff that play jokes on each other. Sometimes patients play jokes as well. So I had this lovely patient come in and she was saying that she was having chest pain. So I was like, what do you think one of the first things you do? You're going to do their blood pressure and listen to their heart right away before hooking them up. Doing her blood pressure, go to listen to her heart, nothing. I'm like, what the hell? I'm auscultating all around her chest and I'm, you know, where a heart should be, nothing. I'm thinking, am I the world's worst nurse? And of course, I'm tapping on the bell of my stethoscope, making sure it's working. Boom, almost blew my eardrums out doing it. And all of a sudden, she starts to giggle. I'm like, what? What's, what's going on? What's happening? And as it turns out, she had a condition called dextrocardia, which means that her heart was on the other side of her chest, on the right side. So yeah, she played jokes, she played jokes. Turns out I am not the world's worst nurse, and I think for more <laughs> reasons than that, but uh, she came in a second time, tried to fool me a second time, but I was like, oh no, no, not this time. But it, it was kind of adorable. She was just a, a really nice person, and, and at least she could uh, find some humor in her life and in regards to uh, her health and stuff. So yeah, that's it. That's the suture room. Next time I got a real long one, but because today's episode was so super long, I'm going to wait to tell you then. Right. All right. So before I go, remember to be kind, take care of each other, love each other, Take care of yourself, and most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love.
True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill ya. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stack.